Hey guys, I'd like to introduce you to a new podcast that I know you're going to love. Do you like travel? Do you like picturesque locations and getting away from it all? Well, this new podcast has all that and murder. It's called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that took place on vacation. Hosted by a true crime fanatic, her comedy writer husband and his TV producing partner, Slaycation brings a unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, and WTF stories of vacations gone horribly wrong. From the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, two recently engaged lovebirds whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended underwater. Each episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that'll intrigue you. It's the discussion between a longtime married couple and business partners who happen to be Emmy-nominated TV producers. Each episode of Slaycation also includes humor, takeaway and travel tips that will keep your next vacation from being your last. If you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Every town has a dark side. One issue that's always been highly debatable and often divisive is aliens and unidentified flying objects. Whether it's about alleged sightings, photographs and video, or abduction, these unusual stories always seem to create controversy and they court hundreds of opinions that usually fall into two distinctly contrasting categories. The alien or UFO story is deemed as either genuine or fabricated, real or fake, truth or hoax. Well, in November of 1975, 22-year-old American forestry worker Travis Walton disappeared while working in the remote forests of Snowflake, Arizona. And then, five days later, he reappeared, telling an insane story about being abducted by aliens. As expected, UFO believers and skeptics 
had a field day scrutinizing the alleged alien abduction, and it became one of the best-known stories of its kind. Hey guys, it's Andrew Fitzgerald, and welcome to this week's episode of Every Town. Since the 1940s, people have gradually become accustomed to hearing stories about sightings or encounters with alleged flying saucers and alien spacecrafts. But the story of somebody being taken up into one and being experimented on is fairly rare, which is why when Travis narrated his strange experience as witnessed by his co-workers in 1975, he easily got the attention of the world. So let's delve into this alien kidnapping case down in Arizona. The first to be reported while the victim was still missing, and the first alien abduction story given serious consideration by many credible scientists and skeptics alike. Travis Walton was born on February 10, 1953 in Arizona and lived most of his life in Snowflake, a remote town located in the state's Navajo County. The unusual name of the town was derived from the surnames of its founders, Erastus Snow and William Jordan Flake. And really, not many people cared about the town or knew anything about it unless you lived in the area. That is, until November of 1975. During that fall, Travis was employed by his best friend Mike Rogers, so... They were more than just co-workers. In fact, Travis was dating Mike's sister, Dana, who would later on become his wife. Now, Mike had been working for nine years for the United States Forest Service on a contractual basis, and that November, he was hired to thin out scrub brush and undergrowth from a 1,200-plus acre area in northeastern Arizona's Apache Sitgreaves National Forest near Snowflake. The job was the most lucrative contract Mike had received from the government agency, but he was behind schedule. Thus, he assembled a logging crew of seven workers, including himself and Travis. The five other crew members were Ken Peterson, John Goulet, Steve Pierce, Alan Dallas, and Dwayne Smith, who were all from Snowflake as well. In order to meet the deadline and fulfill the contract, they worked overtime, typically from 6 a.m. until sunset, before heading back home together. But something extraordinary and out of this world happened after they packed up just after 6 p.m. on November 5th. Travis had a vivid recollection of what occurred before he was taken. The crew had wrapped up for the day and piled into Mike's truck. Shortly after, they had left the area with Mike behind the wheel. They saw bright glimmers of light from behind a hill and thought that there had to be a fire. As they drove on and got closer, though, they realized there was no smoke at all, though. Then, just above the tree line, they all saw it. A large, silver-colored object shaped like a flattened disc 
hovering above a clearing illuminating the area. It was around 8 feet thick and about 20 feet wide. Travis said, When we pulled up into the light, we had straight view. It was unmistakable. I yelled stop, and one of the guys in the back said it's a spaceship or a flying saucer. It was less than 100 feet away. Mike stopped the truck, and Travis got out impulsively to get a closer look at the object. Travis described the cosmic saucer, saying, It was a clearly defined metallic disc outlined against the sky and fantastic in the grandeur of it. The oddity of what they were staring at alarmed the other guys, so they yelled out to Travis to get back into the truck. But the entranced young logger continued walking towards the disc. Then after about a minute or two, the disc began making noises similar to a loud turbine when Travis was nearly standing below it. Then it started to wobble sideways, so Travis dove for cover behind a log. He then tried to stand up and run away, but a beam of blue-green light coming from beneath the disc struck him with stunning force. The other loggers who saw everything firsthand recall what transpired thereafter. The bright light hurled Travis in a backward motion at least 10 feet into the air, then landed on the ground unconscious. The men stated that the horror was unreal. They were certain that Travis was badly hurt, if not dead. Fearing for their own lives, they drove away from the scene. Mike had recounted that as they fled, he looked back and saw the luminous object lifting up out of the woods and disappearing towards the horizon. The six men came to their senses a bit and knew they had to go back to help their friend. There, they searched in the woods for Travis, but the object was gone, and so was he. Dressed in just a shirt, jeans, and denim jacket on that unforgettable November evening, the men wondered how he could survive the cold winter night if he was out there still alive. One of the logging crew members, Ken Peterson, called the sheriff's office at 7.30 p.m. and initially reported Travis was missing. Deputy Sheriff Chuck Ellison then met the crew at a shopping center in Heber, Arizona. All of them were distraught, while two couldn't even control their tears. They related what they had witnessed to the deputy who was skeptical of the men's surreal account. Ellison thought that If they were acting, they were awfully good at it. Then he notified his supervisor, Sheriff Marlon Gillespie, who arrived an hour later with another police officer, and listened to the story of the six loggers. Mike Rogers, the lead crewman, insisted on going back to the forest to search for his friend with possibly some tracking dogs. Despite the absence of canines of the police and three of the loggers returned to the scene, as the three other crew members were too upset and decided to go home and tell their family and friends. 
The search party grew bigger as more police and volunteers joined in. At the scene of the alleged alien encounter, the police officers found no physical evidence that would validate the account of the loggers. Thus, they raised their suspicion about the story's legitimacy, and they were worried that Travis was actually lost and would succumb to hypothermia. The following day, on November 6th, Mike and Officer Ken Copeland went to Travis's mother, Mary Collette, who lived on a small ranch in Bear Creek, some 10 miles from Snowflake. When told of what happened to her son, Mrs. Collette was calm and reserved and simply asked if anyone other than the police and the eyewitnesses had heard the story. Officer Copeland found her reaction and behavior odd, and it increased the police suspicion that there was more to Travis's disappearance aside from the alleged UFO story. In the early morning that day, officials and volunteers combed the area again, but still found no trace of Travis. Thus, their suspicion that the UFO story was fabricated in order to cover up an accident or even a homicide was heightened. The police had already left and were gone when Mike and Travis's older brother, Dwayne, went to the scene in the mid-morning. And this angered them, thinking that no follow-up search was done. That afternoon, police continued a more thorough search for Travis with helicopters, horse-mounted officers, and jeeps. Curiously, despite the explosive bluish-green light that forcefully hurled Travis into the air then dropped him to the ground, there wasn't any evidence of blast effects, blood, or any shreds of clothing. Neither was there proof of any physically violent altercations among the seven loggers. Separate interrogations of the six witnesses showed similarities in their detailed description of what they termed as a UFO. Mike described the disc as a large glowing object hovering in the air below the treetop about 100 feet away. Dwayne Smith's description of it was smooth and giving off a yellowish-orange light. The other witnesses had parallel observations describing it as unbelievably smooth, a flattened disc with edges clearly defined. Their testimonies about how the event unfolded until Travis went missing ran consistently along the same line. In order to establish their truthfulness, though, Mike and the five other men indicated their willingness to undergo any kind of lie detector test. On November 8th, three days after the inexplicable incident and with Travis still missing, the crew individually took polygraph tests administered by Cy Gilson, a polygraph examiner from the Department of Public Safety, which was associated with the Arizona State Police. Mr. Gilson's vital questions included asking the men if they caused harm to Travis or knew who had caused him harm if they knew where Travis's body was buried, and if they told the truth about seeing a UFO. 
The men all denied harming their fellow logger or knowing who had harmed Travis, denied knowing where his body was, and insisted they had indeed seen a UFO. Five of the crewmen passed the polygraph examination, while Alan Dallas wasn't able to complete the test, so it was ruled inconclusive. Part of Mr. Gilson's official report stated, These polygraph examinations prove that these five men did see some object they believed to be a UFO, and that Travis Walton was not injured or murdered by any one of these men on that Wednesday. He concluded that five of the six men tested were truthful, and the exam results were conclusive. The polygraph examiner thought that if the UFO was fake, aka a hoax, five of these men had no prior knowledge of it. After the release of the tests, Sheriff Marlon Gillespie announced that he accepted the UFO story and believed that the men were telling the truth about the Travis Walton alien abduction incident. Unexpectedly, the news of Travis's disappearance and the surrounding circumstances soon attracted international news reporters, ufologists, and curious individuals who traveled to Snowflake. In one interview, Duane disclosed that he and his brother Travis were quite interested in UFOs, and they would want to get close as possible to any UFO if they ever had the chance. Moreover, Duane himself had witnessed a UFO similar to his brother's incident sometime in 1963. Shortly after the interviews, Sanford Flake, Snowflake's town marshal, announced that the whole incident was a prank engineered by the Walton brothers. Flake said, They had fooled the logging crew by lighting a balloon and releasing it at the appropriate time. But Flake's wife disagreed and said that her husband's story was just as far-fetched as Dwayne Walton's. The authorities tried to keep the scene of the incident for serious forensic examination, but it was made impossible by the mass influx of local and international visitors curious about what happened. Of course, there were mixed reactions from many people. While some admired the crewmen's story, others branded them as liars or pranksters, whose account was simply a joke gone bad. And they surmised that Travis would suddenly reappear on cue from deliberately hiding somewhere. So everyone's big question was, where was Travis Walton? And the most awaited answer came five days after Travis went missing. November 11, 1975 marked the return or reappearance of Travis, who brought with him an even more bizarre story that filled the gap since his mysterious disappearance. The last thing he remembered after approaching the UFO in that forest was being struck by the beam of light and then nothingness. He woke up in pain, felt an overwhelming thirst and weakness, and had breathing difficulties. A bright light shone above him, and the air was heavy and wet. Slowly gaining back his consciousness, 
He first thought he was in a regular hospital surrounded by three figures wearing orange jumpsuits, perhaps medical practitioners. When his vision became clearer, he then realized they were not humans, but horrible-looking creatures. He described them as having a basic humanoid appearance. Shorter than five feet, they had bald heads, no hair. Their heads were domed, disproportionately larger for their little bodies. They looked like fetuses. They had large eyes, enormous eyes, almost all brown without much white in them. The creepiest thing about them were those eyes. They just stared through me. They had no lashes and no eyebrows, and their little noses, ears, and especially mouths never moved. Travis further said they were thin with delicate hands that didn't have nails and covered with marshmallow-looking skin. He attempted to push the one closest to him, but it simply shot back with ease. It felt spongy and soft, Travis said. If he had gripped the human captive, and despite feeling weak, he stood up and yelled at the creatures, Keep back, damn you. He then grabbed an unbreakable glass-like cylinder from a nearby shelf and waved it at the creatures as a weapon. The alien suddenly left the room through an open door, giving Travis a chance to get out from the exam room via a hallway. He entered a dark, spherical room with a high-backed chair at its center. As he walked towards it, the room lit up. When he sat in the empty chair, the room was filled with lights, similar to stars projected on a round planetarium ceiling. When he stood up, the star-forming lights disappeared, but he saw what he thought was a rectangular outline on the wall, perhaps a door, and he went to look for it. Suddenly, he heard a sound behind him. Turning around, he was pleasantly surprised to see a tall human figure wearing a blue bodysuit and glassy helmet. Their eyes were larger than normal and were a bright gold color. This man led Travis to a large room similar to an aircraft hangar. There, Travis realized he'd just left a disc-shaped craft similar to the one in the forest just before he was struck by the bluish light. But this craft was perhaps twice as big. Then Travis was brought to another room and placed on a small table. A woman who resembled a tall, helmeted man held an oxygen mask, which he placed on his face. Before he could fight back, Travis said he passed out. When he awoke on a cold night, Travis said he was outside the gas station in Heber, Arizona. One of the disc-shaped crafts was hovering just above the highway and then shot away shortly after. Travis didn't have an idea he had been gone for five days and thought that only a few hours had passed. He then called his brother-in-law, Grant Neff, who initially doubted that Travis was on the line, but later drove to Heber with Dwayne to get him. 
finally, the most wanted man in Snowflake, Arizona was home. Upon his return, he and his family were besieged by UFO researchers, authorities, profiteers, debunkers, and the media that wanted his story. Travis's health was the main concern for his family. His brother Dwayne received a call from the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, or APRO, a civilian UFO research group which promised to arrange a medical examination for Travis. The National Enquirer, an American tabloid known for sensationalism, financed APRO's research in exchange for access to Travis. The medical examination showed that Travis was essentially in good health and no sign of drugs were found in his system. Despite being in a still distraught state, Travis was asked to take a polygraph test, which was controversial as Travis and the examiner had a dispute over the manner in which the test was done. However, Travis subsequently passed two polygraph tests. And following this, the National Enquirer awarded Travis and his co-workers a $5,000 prize for Best UFO Case of the Year. Some ufologists, like Jim Ledwith, believe Travis was abducted by aliens. He said, For five days, the authorities thought Travis had been murdered by his co-workers, and then he was returned. All of the co-workers who were there, who saw the spacecraft, They all took polygraph tests and they all passed, except for one, and that one was inconclusive. As expected, skeptics debunked Travis's story and considered it a hoax. They described it as sensationalizing on the part of the media and a put-up job to make money. UFO researcher and debunker Philip Klass reported that Travis's polygraph tests were poorly administered, that Travis used polygraph countermeasures. He also found many discrepancies in the accounts of Travis and his co-workers. Cognitive psychologist Susan Clancy argued that Travis was likely influenced by the TV movie The UFO Incident about the alien abduction claims of Betty and Barney Hill back in 1961. It had aired just two weeks before Travis's claimed abduction, and both Class and Clancy believed Travis was inspired to stage his own in order to become an instant celebrity. And Travis indeed became one. Four decades later, and Travis, now a father working as a foreman at a lumber mill, still stands by his story. He'd taken five separate lie detector tests to prove his account was true, while the crew members had taken a total of 11 polygraph tests. Meanwhile, despite allegations of a hoax by many, no one has brought forth any proof to substantiate those claims. In retrospect, Travis Walton, whose story still remains one of the most intriguing reports of UFO abduction, has this to say. When I made that fateful choice to leave the truck, 
I was leaving behind more than just my six fellow workmen. I was leaving behind forever all semblance of a normal life, running headlong toward an experience so overwhelmingly mind-rending in its effects, so devastating in its aftermath, that my life would never, could never, be the same again. So that's going to do it, guys, for this week's episode of Every Town. Hope you enjoyed it. And please tune in next week for another one filled with scary, strange, and mysterious stories. Because who knows? Maybe your town will be next. <laughs>